Hi everyone, and thank you for joining Cybersecurity Career Talks. I have uh, three experts with me today who are going to talk about uh, cyber investigation careers and how you can transition into one, uh, the education uh, experience and certifications required to have a career in incident response, computer forensics, or uh, threat intelligence. And uh, before we start, I will just read out a disclaimer. The views expressed in this presentation and during the session are personal opinions of the participants and do not reflect the official policy or position of their respective employers. This discussion is a volunteer-led effort to contribute to the profession and pay forward the many kindnesses and instances of support and guidance that the participants have received in the course of their career. I will introduce my guest today. Chris Novak is a co-founder and global director of the Verizon Threat Research Advisory Center. He is an internationally recognized expert in the field of incident response, computer forensics, and threat intelligence. He has been involved with cybersecurity for over 20 years. Chris has assisted corporations, governments, government agencies, and attorneys with all matters in involving digital forensics, fraud investigations, and crisis management. He has been an advisor on dozens of high-profile intrusion and breach investigations around the globe. He works closely with local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies, as well as joint investigative operations coordinated with law enforcement. And our second guest is John Grimm. John has 17 plus years of experience investigating, assessing, and ad advising on data breaches and incident response activity within government and corporate sectors. John has managed technical investigative response teams, parlays his knowledge and experience into advising uh, clients and speaking publicly, and has developed thought leadership and content that emphasizes data preparedness and response. John is the primary researcher, author, and producer of the Verizon Insider Threat Report, the Verizon Inci Incident Preparedness Report, and the uh, and from 2016 to 18, the Verizon Data Breach Digest, as well as he's the co-author of the 2019 Verizon Payment Security Report. Mauricio Teles is a senior security consultant who helps companies worldwide respond to security incidents, as well as provides guidance to leadership teams by moderating breach simulation exercises. He holds a bachelor's and a master's in computer science with concentration in information security. And he has contributed to the security community by publishing research papers through IEEE. He continues to grow professionally by obtaining certifications in both defensive and offensive fields of security. And uh, I'm your host for today, your friend. And if you need any guidance or help regarding uh, transitioning into a cybersecurity career, please reach out to me. 
so our agenda for today we are going to discuss first is what is overview of an incident uh, response and related career so when we talk about cyber investigations what, what does that mean what are the different roles or when 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 is something it's a, when is the time when somebody would uh, call you or when would people engage somebody uh, when we are talking about like a cyber breach incident or something so chris can you just like provide an overview of cyber incident and uh, investigation and re- response when when would you normally get call from somebody Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So the the reality of it is, organizations tend to call at all different stages. So we'll see an organization that sometimes will call when they're not even really sure something at all has happened. They somebody said, "Hey, I thought I saw something of yours on the internet that probably shouldn't be there," and people will scramble to try to figure out if it's true, what it is, whether or not it's really sensitive, and what it is that they might need to do in order to. resolve that did they actually have an incident that resulted in that data getting out there can they even find it um then there are other circumstances where they know for a fact they've had an incident they themselves may have seen for example something very suspicious or they may have found malware in their environment or they can see malicious network connections back to uh command and control or something like that and they will need assistance with investigating that and doing the proper incident response to figure out what happened because you know when you look at incident response you kind of have this whole kind of life cycle of trying to figure out did something happen then once you understand that it has happened figuring out what happened how did a uh, a malicious person get in or was it maybe an insider threat and then after you identify that they're in and they've done something you need to figure out the totality of what it is that they've done right it's not just somebody got in that should be here it's Well now there's all these data privacy laws and and what not that dictate who we need to notify and what we need to do so all of that will kind of carry through that process so many organizations will kind of call us at different stages of it based on either whether or not they have the skills at that particular stage or whether or not maybe the size of the situation may be overwhelming their capacity and so normally maybe they don't need help but this time it's too big for them to handle or maybe they just have too many cases going on and they just need the extra hands sure so now your team is engaged right they, you get a call from them saying hey we need your help right now and normally like people watch all these different shows and they think that okay everybody gets on a jet and they go there and within one hour they finish everything and they catch whoever needs to be caught and here they are like now uh, so and i know this is like very different so can you can you john can you tell us like what exactly happens and then uh, mauricio you can also jump in so what exactly happens during the process itself or no once you get a call like now you've okay. received and and chris maybe uh, depending on like uh, everybody's perspective but suppose once you get that call chris gets that call what happens next It's... like do you guys jump on a plane and the jet and then fly down to wherever finish it within one hour and then come back absolutely so uh and i'll talk from maybe a historical perspective as well in what what we've seen here with incident response when we get the call in the old days we would be flying to go and maybe spend a couple nights in a data center collecting the evidence everything from uh the system images to the logs 
And then over time, uh, forensic tools, techniques, investigative response really started to mature where we started capturing memory dumps and live system images. So we needed to get there as quickly as possible before the computer systems would start overwriting the data or before the threat actors would start overwriting the data. So time got, got scrunched in terms of the response. So what we found was we needed to be at the ready all the time, have our bags packed, be ready to go, have our tools ready to go, be, be very well versed in using our tools, using the cutting edge tools, those tools that get us that data as quickly as possible in a live state. And then over time, as we get closer to, to today, tools started to develop where we were able to actually do for, uh, forensic response uh, online on, on, in a live network where we're capturing the data without even having to uh, shut down the systems, without even having to get the memory dump. So incident response has really morphed over time from a get there, unplug the system, take out the hard disk drive, do a bit for bit image, collect it, then starting to do the analysis and then doing the reporting. All of that stuff is scrunched together now where we're doing the collecting, the analysis and the reporting on the fly. And we're actually even starting uh, to see over the, over the previous years uh, how we're doing this remotely in support of our customers. So it's kind of where, where, where we are in terms of the trend over time. Mauricio could probably give you some more perspective from some of the, the newer techniques and tools that we're using. Mauricio? Yep, sure thing. Yeah, so good points from John. Uh, at the end of the day, the entire industry has changed and moved into uh, the endpoint detection response solution, so EDR solution. So there's a lot of companies out there that offer that service. And it definitely has changed the game just because you're able to touch every endpoint enterprise-wide. It could be global as well uh, within seconds. So you're able to collect uh, different artifacts from a system within seconds and be able to consolidate those results into one server where you can perform your analysis. Whereas uh, back in the old days, don't get me wrong, we still do this uh, from day to day, uh, depending on the customer that they, we're dealing with, where we have to go on site and have to collect uh, each individual system. It's more of a manual process compared to using EDR solutions. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we, we support both uh, the on-site or remote uh, capabilities but going back to the traveling, sometimes, uh, like John said, we have to have everything packed up and we, we may need to be in a plane within four hours. So luckily for me, I live close to the airport here at Dallas. Uh, but it just things you have to kind of adapt depending on what the customer demands are, meaning the type of environment that you're dealing with whenever they call us uh, to assist with any investigations. Thank you, Mauricio. And uh, Chris, what are the kind type of incidents that you would get called for? Yeah, so it's pretty broad range. Um, you know, it's funny when I start talking about what it is that we do, I, I really, you know, I often find myself saying that if it can be investigated and generally if it's electronic or digital, we probably examine it. Um, but some of the kinds of cases we typically see are um, payment card, like your credit card, debit card breaches, the big ones that you hear about, you know, if a retailer or an e-commerce organization gets compromised, that's a, a a specific type of incident we get called for a lot. Um, we also get called for a lot of um, theft of intellectual property, also insider threats where, you know, someone will say, hey, this person is leaving, you know, maybe it's a, a high-ranking executive is leaving and they are trying to take interesting secrets about what the company's plans are with them and they want to investigate that. Or maybe it's salespeople leaving and they want to try and take their clients with them. So there's a lot of kind of insider and intellectual property cases that we also see. Um, and then we also see a fair bit of things like, um, 
you know, uh, attacks against industrial control systems, you know, things that may impact a power grid or a transportation system, um, as well as, you know, we're seeing more and more in the area of IoT. So um, I think um, Mauricio had done some good research on that as well, in particular. And then the other one that's probably kind of happening all over the place right now is ransomware. We see a lot of cases and get a lot of calls for organizations who say, hey, I thought I was prepared, but it turns out I wasn't. I got hit with this ransomware attack. I need help with figuring out, you know, how it happened so that I can make sure after I've cleaned it up, it doesn't immediately happen again. And then I need to understand, you know, what do I do with the next steps? How do I best recover and get the organization back on its feet? And, and then there's a whole countless other area of different types of incidents. I don't know, John, Mauricio, if you have thoughts on things that I might have overlooked. Mauricio, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, another one that's uh, very popular out there is the cryptocurrency mining malware as well as e email-based compromise, so meaning your email got compromised. But at the end of the day, what narrows down to, regardless of what incident it is and what we're seeing, uh, essentially most of those incidents fall under the category as far as the uh, initial um, vector of compromise is phishing emails. So I think a lot of uh, aspects from when it comes down to an incident, it narrows down to the social engineering aspect, meaning individuals being targeted. So there's a saying in the industry that the users are always the weakest link. And it's a true saying just because we, we do see it on a day-to-day basis uh, with the, all the investigations that, that we deal with worldwide, where essentially the user got compromised, meaning their credentials got compromised, and they can directly log into any system that has single-factor authentication uh, meaning it could be if you have an email um, email web server that's internet facing, then the threat actor has the credentials and can directly log in and even send internal phishing emails after they log in, which is a whole whole other mess and a whole other animal whenever you're doing investigations. But uh, I think at, at the end of the day, what narrows down is it's the users being targeted, not so much sending uh, events malware to your networks. It's more mostly the users click on the link or given up their credentials or even sometimes even given up that two-factor authentication that you might get text or receive a text on your on your phone and then you provide that also to the external actor. So I have I have a comment to add on to Chris and, and Mauricio is is the not yet an incident type incident where uh, we're using our investigative techniques and we're, we're not applying them in a, in a reactive manner, we're using them in a proactive manner to do threat hunting through the enterprise environment, for example, or health checks, where we're looking at holistically the environment, the systems, the memory, the volatile data, any suspicious files, the network connections, the logs, uh, even doing some interviews to see if there are indications that a data breach occurred or a cybersecurity incident occurred that hadn't been detected by the cyber defenses already in place. So it's one of the things that we've seen over the years that customers are asking for more and more is those proactive uh, investigations where we're looking for the threat actors or looking for indicators that the threat actors have been in the environment. And this is especially effective for uh, those advanced threat actors that uh, have the skill sets to avoid detection, evade detection, cover their tracks. Uh, we see a lot of uh, organizations looking for us to apply our reactive investigative skills in uh, those types of engagements. So it's, it's definitely another aspect that we've seen in terms of uh, morphing and, and, and maturing of investigations and incident response is actually look, leaning forward and looking to see if there is an incident that hasn't been detected. 
Thank you so much. So this this is this is really good background information because now what we've learned is that in like incident response is part of the job, but preparing somebody before the incident, looking, going out and doing threat hunting and trying to see what uh, how it can be prevented altogether is even more important now, especially because everything is in the cloud and we are not going to go able to touch a server or, you know, um, not be able to go to like a physical infrastructure where that particular threat is contained. And uh, that, that basically brings us to the next one. So in, in your cybersecurity investigation teams, right? Uh, or incidents response teams, or what are the various roles um, that people can uh, probably, you know, uh, apply for or uh, position themselves uh, against? Like say, what are the roles and what are the entry level roles? And what, what are matured roles which would require uh, basically some a couple of years of uh, experience. Christian. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll jump on that. Um, so I, I think probably the area, if you're looking at um, entry level, um, I would say that there's a couple of areas. In particular, we tend to look at things kind of through a couple of different lenses. One is what we often refer to as field investigators and then lab investigators. And the reason why we break it up that way is the field investigators typically are the ones that travel to uh, client locations. So when a client calls and says they have an incident and they need help, typically the field investigators would be the ones that would be hopping on a plane, grabbing a bag, hopping on a plane and going to that client site for an undetermined amount of time and helping them generally face-to-face, -face, walking them through and talking them through what's going on. And in many cases, there may be a, a team of those that would go to that client site. And there's many opportunities in, in particular in that area for people who want to break into the, the field because there's a lot of different levels of skill sets that are really required there. So you've got everything from in-depth and as well as light technical skills to also communication. And so there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there on the kind of entry side of the field investigators. The lab investigative side of things is more behind the scenes. I would tend to say that's where um, maybe a bit more research, a bit more analytics happens, but it's generally from one of our lab locations and it doesn't require any kind of travel. It's not visiting with and maybe not even so much interacting directly with the clients. It may be more performing the the support work. I, I kind of almost say it's, it's similar to a doctor. You, you go to the doctor and they may draw blood to run a test and they give that sample to someone in their lab who actually does the test, produces the results, gives it back to the doctor, and then the doctor tells you what the result is, but you don't necessarily interact directly with the lab that actually does that back-end work. And in all of those facets, I see there being opportunities for entry level, as well as all the way up to subject matter experts. And so when you start kind of unfolding and unpacking that, I'd say there's different skill sets that, that really kind of pop out that you can maybe more specialize in or, or become an SME. And I don't know if uh, John Mauricio, you want to add a little color to that? We, we also have, uh, absolutely, Chris. Uh, so we also have folks that, that support us from an Intel standpoint. And we've really seen this in another uh, example of, of how investigations have matured over the years or at least capabilities. So we've really seen Intel over the last several years make an impact on investigations. So folks with those kind of backgrounds that have a government or a military background, or, or you, they work well in the corporate in the corporate sense when it comes to investigations because they have that that analytical uh, outlook. They've got the the organization skills and the discipline discipline to look at 
uh, threat actor indicators or compromise tactics, techniques, procedures, and help apply that to the investigation. In fact, we not only see intelligence and, and those type of roles supporting the investigation and giving us uh, eyes outside the enterprise environment, for lack of a better way of saying it, but they've also been the tip of the spear in terms of triggering uh, investigations, what they're digging up and what they're finding in terms of the threat actors. So that's an absolute uh, essential role with incident response and cyber investigations um, nowadays in terms of uh, really force multiplying what we can do. I'll see if Mauricio has anything else to add. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, so all great points. I think uh, if we want to kind of set some, um, I guess, titles here for different team roles or incident response roles would be uh, breaking it down to what type of artifacts need to take a look at. So field investigators are typically in charge of looking at the actual systems, look, looking at the bigger picture. Um, so being able to work with different teams within the incident response uh, team. So other teams within that group would be uh, network forensics analysts. So uh, the individuals looking at the actual logs, any, any, anything associated with artifacts at the network level. Then you also have your threat intelligence team. So John kind of highlighted that in a, little, a little bit where they're actually doing the uh, background or trying to identify whatever this uh, malicious IP address is associated with. Then you also got your malware analyst team. So those, those are the guys that are actually looking at the uh, bits and bytes of uh, actual malicious code. And then you got the um, uh, dark web hunter. So anyone that's actually going in, into the dark web, uh, searching for any indicators of compromise or even establishing a communication with a threat actor if they're asking for ransom whenever you're dealing with ransomware cases. So there's uh, definitely a lot of moving parts when it comes down to responding to the incident on the technical aspect as well as the non-technical aspect because uh, again, you also have to deal with the non-technical folks where uh, it could be counsel, HR, corporate communications, uh, all those other individuals uh, within an entity that you need to be able to communicate the technical aspect to those individuals in order for them to make uh, informed decisions uh, based on what you're seeing on the, on the analysis. Sure, thank you so much. Now, now we know what are the various roles because this is much broader than probably what uh, I, I started off thinking about when I talked about incident response of computer forensics and, and uh, uh, threat intelligence. Um, you, you gave a much broader overview and the kind of roles that people could transition into or maybe apply for especially even um, what are like entry-level roles that uh, somebody can. And this is, this is, this is a very um, important um, thing because are there any typical career paths like you do this, then you do that or something? Because uh, John and Chris, I mean, uh, you, you have like some really unique uh, um, path, pathways. So can you... Chris, can you start off with, uh, are there any typical career paths or, um, and, and what is your, uh, what is your uh, career journey being like? Sure. Yeah. I, I think that's an interesting one because um, to be honest, when I started in this area, I would tend to say that there was not really a well-defined career path for it. Um, so I actually started, uh, my background is in computer engineering. And when I got into the workforce, I just started getting all into all sorts of computer-related items. I was very interested in hardware design and things like that. But then, you know, there was kind of the whole internet and dot-com boom that was happening, and there was a surge of demand. And so kind of got more into the IT side of things than, than really the traditional computer engineering side. And 
from there, it kind of ballooned. And it was interesting because there, there were no classes you could take on, on or, or at least there weren't degrees you could get in information security or cybersecurity. Even the term cybersecurity wasn't even really a thing. We were calling it InfoSec back then. Um, and so it kind of started with, you know, I was helping organizations who were kind of connecting to this new thing called the Internet say, hey, you know what? Um, I think we need security around this because what happens if something happens? So then we started going down the path of, all right, well, you know what? I'll get into the, the business of, you know, designing network security architecture. And so I would do firewalls and then got into IDS and IPS. And then organizations started calling and saying, hey, I think there's something wrong. And so and then at the time, it was kind of more of like troubleshooting, not so much even really incident response. But then it really blew up into a whole field of incident response when we started seeing more hacks and attacks, you know, website defacements, really like the early days of, of kind of incidents. And then from there, it blew up into the data breaches that we see today. And, you know, the, the whole landscape has changed dramatically. And so my career journey was kind of I was kind of almost um, I don't know if I would say kind of pulled through it because there was not really a defined um, path. There were no courses you could take. So I kind of had to figure it out as I went. Now, though, I think a lot of that has changed in that there's a lot of universities that have amazing programs on cybersecurity, bachelor's, master's, even now PhD programs on it, which I think definitely are, are much more helpful. But I think one of the key things that I see a lot of individuals struggle with, they love cybersecurity because of what they see and hear from people. But it's important to understand, like we talked about on the, the last slide there, the various roles, what is it about cybersecurity that excites them? Because I see there being everything from, you know, security auditing on one side to incident response maybe on the other, and there's a lot of difference between it. So I think it's important to, for people to kind of understand what is it that they're passionate about. Um, you know, it's interesting because, like, you see, um, you know, I talk to people about, um, you know, what it's like. And you mentioned before, you know, people see things on TV about, you know, someone jumps on the, the jet and goes. And, you know, it's, it's like um, the, the medical dramas or the military dramas you see where, you know, you know, the first time you watch Top Gun, everyone's like, oh, I want to be a fighter pilot. Um, and that sounds great until you realize that the first day in the military, they don't let you fly the fighter jet. That may be years and years of a lot of grunt work before you actually even first step into a plane and then let alone actually get to fly it. Um, and so we see a lot of the same things with some of this as well is that when you actually get into this field, you know, I, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of grunt work and foundational understanding that's really required in order to really get to that level where the, the more exciting incident response stuff happens. And even then, some of that is still kind of kind of grunt work at times um, as well. And, you know, it, it, whenever I interview someone for an incident response role on our team, you know, there's, there's two things that I always advise them on. And one is the hours can be the most bizarre you've ever seen. One week, it may be very Monday through Friday, nine to five. The next week, it may be, you know, Sunday to Sunday and every hour of every day because you are knee deep in the middle of some kind of incident response effort. And, and what I tell people is, you know, usually I'm looking for people who are really passionate about it. The analogy I often use when I'm interviewing people is it's like being a doctor in the ER. Once you kind of start that ER procedure, the patient would appreciate it if you didn't leave and go home in the middle. They want, they want to know that you're going to finish it out, right? Um, and so the same thing with the incident response. You get into it, and you, it's, it's like a good book or an amazing movie or something else. You get drawn in so deep 
that it's not like anyone is making you do the work. It's you are so excited by the work that you just can't put it down. And sometimes we almost have to work with our team members to help them pace themselves because otherwise, you know, they can, they can really easily get, um, get sucked into it. And then the other piece that I often advise people is depending on what it is you're looking to do on the incident response side, particularly if you're looking to get into that field investigator side where you're jumping on a plane and you're traveling all over the world, expect that the travel sometimes can be, you know, almost unbearable at times in, in that, you know, as Mauricio said, you get a call and a couple hours later, you know, he's, he's in the car heading to Dallas airport, hopping on the next flight out to wherever. And it's a, it's a one-way flight and he doesn't know how soon he's coming back home. It could be a couple of days. It could be a couple of weeks. I mean, I've had folks that hopped on a plane to the other side of the world and they, they, they worked there for a couple of months. Um, so it's really something that you've got to be passionate about. And that's kind of that career path piece of, of advice that I give everybody who's looking to get into that area. And John, do you have to add? Like, do you want to add something? Yeah, I can. Uh, sure. I, a similar situation that Chris had when he started out, but a different path, if that makes sense. Uh, so back when, when I got involved, uh, they didn't have college degrees. They didn't even have certification programs for digital forensics or investigative response in the cyber realm. I kind of, and I didn't know this at the time, I, I had a liberal, two liberal arts degrees in college, and that absolutely um, had no impact on where I am now. I, I actually, uh, after college, joined the military and became an investigator in, in the analytic, or the, the, um, the, the real world, the non-digital world. And from there, I was able to parlay that skill set into an opportunity to become a cyber investigator. So I was an analog person doing investigations, uh, looking at things analytically from that standpoint, the everyday uh, physical security, those kind of things. And I've translated those skills into with, with a wonderful opportunity in the military to cyber investigations. So I was able to then have to um, drink the, the, uh, from the fire hose in terms of getting my digital skills up to, to speed. And, and so from there, I was able to transition into the corporate world with those same skill sets of being an investigator, as well as uh, being uh, somebody that works in the digital realm, in the cyber realm. And those skill sets that I had built up in the, in the military probably well into where I am now. Uh, the one thing though in transitioning to the corporate world was it moves a lot faster, a lot faster than the government. Um, it's, you know, time is money, customers are breached. Uh, going back to what Chris Mauricio said, having that bag ready, ready to get on a, a plane and fly somewhere um, at a moment's notice. That was something I was used to in the military, but that was something that was a lot quicker in, in the corporate world, especially um, getting used to the fact that you're, you're moving into an environment that you might not be familiar with. You're familiar with your tools and your procedures and your methodology, but every day is a different day when it comes to an investigation or incident response effort. Uh, we, we take pride in the fact that we're flexible, we're tool agnostic, we can get into an environment, we're an environment agnostic group, uh, we can cover down on different situations, whether it be the cloud, whether it be the real world data center, Linux, Windows, any of that, that's, that's something that, uh, kind of getting into what Chris was saying, that's something that we look for in folks who, who, who have that, that, that ability to be flexible, right, but disciplined at the same time. The analytical insight that they can provide to an investigation is it's, it's essential. Having the cyber skill sets at the same time, being able to be technical, okay, but also convey those findings to potentially non-technical audiences. 
uh, Chris mentioned communication and Mauricio mentioned um, working with different stakeholders. What we found is once you get your skill set set, they're never set. You have to continue to improve upon those, especially since nowadays we're dealing with uh, advanced threat actors. That's complex in and of itself. Um, and we've had to keep up with our skill sets and in, 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 in outpacing them to the extent we can and being able to investigate them. But we're also um, seeing that investigations and incident response efforts are more complex from the standpoint of the stakeholders. It's not just cybersecurity, IT security, the SOC folks, the CERT folks, um, um, and some of the other specialists when it comes to the technical realm. It's also working with other stakeholders, such as the legal team, corporate communications, human resources, physical security, data loss prevention, business continuity, the list goes on and on. So incident response is definitely a field where over the years, folks have had to, to change, mature, morph as the threat actors continue to, to change, mature, and morph. But also the folks that are dealing with incident response, there's a lot more folks that have a piece of the pie that have a responsibility. So what I like most about this career is it's ever changing and it's fresh all the time. Not only is that investigation something you're walking into that's going to be uh, that's going to keep you on your toes right until you come to incident resolution, but you get to work with different people from different backgrounds, both on your team as well as folks that you're dealing with uh, from a stakeholder uh, for the, the actual client that you're serving. Uh, different folks uh, with different uh, aspects that they bring to the table, making it very exciting and, and something that I know is never going to get stale. It's always going to be. Uh, something that's ever changing you as long as you're um, in the game and willing to continue on your career path to uh, uh, a very exciting um, uh, conclusion when all is said and done. So, Yeah, all great points. Uh, I just wanted to add two more things uh, or two things uh, from Chris and John. Uh, I think Chris hit, hit it on the nail as far as uh, the passion. So at the end of the day, regardless if you choose cybersecurity or any career or any other career that you, that you choose, uh, the way I see careers is like a re relationship, right? You first like it, the more you learn about it, you learn to love it, and then it turns into passion. And uh, there's been days where I'm uh, at the office doing analysis where I'm just sitting there and I even forget to take lunch, right? You're so dived into that um, analysis or whatever you're doing that you like so much that it comes down to you don't want to see it as a job. You want to see it as something that you really like and you don't even notice that you're actually working. So every time I wake up and go to work or go to my office, we all work remotely. Uh, I sit down and I, I don't feel like I'm working just because it's something that I like doing. It's something that I continue learning about and I continue loving. So you got to find something that you're passionate about because if you get into this field, just because some people like to get into it because of the money, but if you get into it because of the money, you're never going to be successful, right? You want to make sure that you learn to love this field and you're doing it for the right reasons, not because you're chasing uh, a bigger paycheck. Uh, and then the second thing is, as far as an entry-level job uh, within cybersecurity, what I've seen uh, when I graduated from college, there was a lot of entry-level positions under the SOC analysts, meaning Security Operations Center analysts. So those are the individuals that are you know, constantly monitoring the network to see if anything suspicious or malicious is going on. So they're the tier one uh, analysts where they're, they're working 24 seven, making sure nothing's uh, breaking or nothing's um, happening that's, that will be deemed as an incident. 
and then they hand that hand that down to the tier two, tier three uh, teams. So that would be like forensics investigator, more senior analysts uh, who do the triaging. So that's what I've seen in the past where people who are just getting into security would start and then slowly go up that tier one, tier two approach. And then another thing, what I noticed as far as uh, if you're already working for a company and you're at the service desk or even sysadmin, what I've seen in the past is individuals who are working for a company for more than 10 years, they typically move from help desk to network operations center. So the knock analyst into the security analyst and then slowly move into the incident response. So a lot of companies who've recently established a security team, they typically like to assign that individual who has who has been able to work with different different teams throughout time and has that experience for, for each individual uh, team who get who gets assigned that role, meaning that they're the incident commander or they're the individual who will be, who will be leading that incident response team just because they know different aspects of the environment, not just the security aspect, but they know the system network aspect, the system administrators aspect, the help this. So there's a lot of roles that do contribute into uh, being a successful security uh, engineer or security investigator uh, when it comes down to trying to pick the right career path. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, and education. Now, based on what we spoke already, um, all, all, all three of you have got unique backgrounds in education. And, but today, somebody, and, and this was back in the day, right? Uh, when, when we did not have these uh, cybersecurity, and even now we've got like say specializations in cybersecurity bachelor level at the master's level and all that. So today, if somebody were to like uh, say, hey, I want, I'm really interested in this uh, cybersecurity incident response or maybe like any kind of uh, career which uh, has like computer forensics so they like to do some kind of research or maybe even threat intelligence and and do you recommend like any particular education path or formal or informal or if you had to hire between say somebody who is recent graduate who has got all this um related like uh, education and with somebody else who started off much earlier and um would would that be like a differentiator would you pick one over the other or what is your experience so i guess i, I would say it's probably going to depend on how the individual presents themselves um so given my background and many of the kind of veterans on my team and the fact that so many did not have a formal cybersecurity education background, they kind of self-taught or immerse themselves in it later. Uh, I guess I'd like to think that maybe I'm more open-minded in that I'm not looking for people to have a very strict background. So, you know, when I, when I talk to our recruiters, for example, I don't require that they only bring candidates that have a bachelor's in cybersecurity or some form like that. I typically look to say, hey, if someone has a degree in this, that's great. That would lead me to believe that they have completed some prerequisites and probably have a lot of the foundational early year experience that we'd want to see them have. But I typically am also looking for people outside that because a lot of our team has come from, you know, former law enforcement, former military. John mentioned he had a liberal arts background uh, from college. So given that, I'm, I'm really looking for people who kind of have the right mindset 
And then I look to see, okay, if they have the, the educational background, you know, a bachelor's or a master's, that's great. That should mean that they probably can come in a little bit higher because ideally they have more of that uh, skill set under their belt and maybe require less training. So I would say the education may help in the event you want to start a little higher on the ladder and you can demonstrate that you already have those lower level skills um, is, is typically the way that I would probably look at it. Um, generally, people that um, come with like PhDs, most of the time folks that are coming from that perspective, they're usually looking maybe less on the traditional incident response side I've found, and they're typically more looking for research and academic type of work. So it's kind of, I'd say that would be a differentiator too that we would see. Sure. And uh, John, what do you think? Uh, I, I, I agree with Chris. I, I think nowadays there's there's plenty of opportunities with different degrees and certifications through those paths, but those are really just a stepping stone to uh, a, a position on an incident response team. You have to be able to have uh, the people skills, being able to communicate, being outgoing, both a technical person, but also somebody who can interface with people. One thing that we also didn't talk about very much was uh, getting into the reporting and being able to, to not only verbally convey, convey uh, what you've seen uh, with your investigation, but also put it into writing. So there is a lot of report writing that we do to, to wrap up the investigation. And, and folks, I think that have, uh, have those college degrees, and again, I had a liberal arts degree, so I was writing all kinds of term papers, um, being able to write reports uh, in a way to convey technical findings to sometimes a non-technical audience is, is something that also helps out. Um, I know it's a little bit different than what we're talking about here on the screen, but, but I just did want to mention that, that report writing is a big part of the fact of the job. You don't actually see that on, on the crime scene dramas on TV, but as an investigator, there is a lot of documentation that you have to do. Um, I do think uh, getting back to the degrees and certifications, they are helpful. Um, but experience in the field, or in, in my case, investigative experience and intel experience, um, I was able to use that and parlay that. And I still think that that happens nowadays. There's a lot more uh, positions uh, out there in the, in the government and the military that as people leave and transition, um, they can use those positions to get into um, the incident response field in the corporate realm. Um, did you want me to talk about the training as well? or was, was or we gonna... Next slide. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and actually, before yeah. before you leave that, John, I just wanted to highlight something you mentioned, too, if I could. And that is you, you touched on something really great there, which was the communication and the reporting. So, Nalufa, one of the things that we've done just because we are kind of trying to not just look at the, the technical side of it, but also, you know, we see obviously folks, folks come out of uh, academia, come out of, you know, university with degrees. We're not just looking to see that academically they were able to go through a class and take a test, but we're also looking to see that they can apply it practically. So what we actually do now as part of our interviewing process, we have the normal you know, face-to-face -face conversations or phone interviews, but we also actually have every candidate go through a technical examination where we essentially give them essentially an incident response case and we give them evidence and artifacts and then we ask them to essentially investigate it and provide a report back to us. And then depending on the quality of that, we may also, in addition to that, ask them for a writing sample. Because to John's point, one of the key things that is, uh, man, it is really hard, is if you're not used to writing reports and writing them so that, you know, a CISO can read it and understand what happened, or they will take it to their board and say, these are the details and this is what we need to fix. That can be really hard. I, I you know, it's, it's 
all about how do you take what you know on the technical side and translate that to other people on the customer side in the business that need to know what the impacts are. So I can't stress enough how important that is beyond the technical. In fact, it's funny, I joke with people now that, you know, when I was in college, I was thinking of myself as a computer engineer going, why the heck do I have to take writing courses? Um, and now I thank God every day that I took those writing courses. As much as I thought they were maybe not so useful back then, they, they have helped me immensely uh, today. Sure, thanks. Uh, so basically conveying that information to a management or uh, to somebody who is not uh, well-versed with uh, common parlance. So like, you know, taking all the jargons out and communicating in plain English where, you know, people like a CISO or the board can understand what is going on and uh, enough level of details, but not getting too much into the weeds, right? And the, the, Exactly. When we talk about education and uh, when we are talking about like training and all that, one of the questions is there are like bunch of tools, right? So what about learning those tools? Do they give somebody an edge? What tools would you recommend that people... Because back in the day, when I started, I'm dating myself, but NCASE was like the thing, you know, and if you <laughs> knew about NCASE and you were NCASE certified, like, you know, prob probably you had a much better shot than anybody else. So can you speak about that? Like, are there any open source tools available? And, and, and Maurice also can uh, chime in uh, from, from that point of view. But I'll start with Chris and uh, Chris, can you uh, tell us about yeah, so I, I'd say my background is probably similar in that when I started, there were not a lot of tools. Uh, pretty much there was NCASE and then FTK came on the scene and then there were a handful of open source, you know, boot CDs. Heck, when I started, we were actually using boot floppies. You'd carry around a flip folder of all your boot floppies uh, that you'd put into a system depending on what uh, device drivers you needed to load. Um, but obviously a lot has changed. There's a lot more in terms of both commercial and open source. And I, I will absolutely yield to Mauricio. He is um, very much an SME on, uh, on a lot of the tools that we use. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I think uh, as far as open source tools, there's definitely a lot of uh, code out there in GitHub where you can go and uh, essentially do your research as far as what tools, what specific tasks you want to accomplish with that tool and learn how to use it. But at the end of the day, I think the biggest uh, step that an individual should take is just learning in theory uh, the entire security um, components, right? We want to learn both the network aspect of uh, whenever an intruder comes into a network, how it comes in. So you want to see like from the internet facing system all the way down to the infected system, the, the entire uh, line of systems that got infected. So you want to learn in theory the aspect of incident response and then learning the tools comes after. And I think the biggest biggest takeaway here is uh, at the end of the day, you want to be an individual that's trainable. Uh, so you want to, it comes down to, if you're join a company, you got to be a team player, right? You want to be able to uh, take tackle on tasks. Don't be afraid to raise your hand and then be able to learn it on your own. Cause a bit, you can learn some tools right now, but it's going to be different when you use the tools on actual incidents on the real world, real world perspectives, because things change when you're actually doing the actual investigation. So the best way to learn is to get your hands dirty. And the only way to do that is if you volunteer yourself to different um, aspects of the incident response process. So essentially don't be afraid uh, to take on tasks that you're not comfortable with, uh, because at the end of the day, that's, that's what's gonna help you grow. You, I mean, you can take a lot of trainings, you can get a lot of certifications, 
but that's just a, a title next to your name. It all comes down to the experience, whether or not you're able to respond uh, to different environments, uh, depending on what you're dealing with. Uh, so again, being a team player, I think is key uh, whenever it comes down to learning, learning tools, learning certif getting certificates or anything along those lines. Thanks. And John, do you yep. have any tools like go to in well, the tool bag, which you say that these are the most important or this is something that I use every day or something and somebody needs to at least uh, be familiar with them? I, I like you, I, I started out with NKs, um, but I learned real quick that you don't want to be a one trick pony. You want to you know, strive to be that unicorn. So in, in doing so, you've got you to have your toolkit. You've got to have multiple fallback solutions because you never know if you're going to have a problem with that primary tool that you use. So you want to have the ability to dig deeper into your tool bag and, and use something that maybe you didn't even think you were going to use, but you still have that, that, that knowledge of using that tool because it's the only thing that will work in that particular environment. So as we've seen forensics change over the years, you've got your, script, your scripts that you use, you've got your commercial tools, uh, such as NCASE, uh, but you've also got to uh, adjust to being able to think on the fly, work on the fly to uh, come up with a solution, um, because after all, you are a, a problem solver in that particular environment to get to uh, to be able to collect that data and then you know back at the labs be able to analyze it. So you've got to be flexible. You've got to have various different tools in your toolkit, and you've also got to start thinking more in the realm of live forensics and all of these wonderful tools that are coming out for the endpoint detection and response, the network detection and response tools that, that really give you the power to get to that data as quickly as possible and, and do your analysis. So still remember those old legacy tools because you never know, you, you may use it. You may have a one-off system that you have to image, for example, or maybe you're in the Linux world and you gotta you know, brush, brush the rust off of your Linux tools, but also remember we're in the modern world and we've gotta be um, always learning new tools always staying up with the environments. Uh, it was mentioned earlier about the cloud. We're seeing a lot of stuff shifting to the cloud. We don't necessarily get physical access anymore to evidence, especially if it's in the cloud. We're not going to a data center. So you gotta be able to use your tools in a remote situation and being able to uh, collect the evidence before you can start analyzing it. So uh, always being up on the latest is, is probably the best uh, advice I can give. And the second best advice is don't forget your old school, uh, your old uh, tools and, and, and skill sets, because you never know, you may have to use them. Thank you so much. And uh, normally, like people have questions like, oh, do I need to know uh, programming? Right. So my question, my answer, like whenever it's like it depends. Right. Basically, you may need to know programming, but it helps to know scripting language. So is that something which is very similar uh, in uh, incident response or cyber investigation? Um, I, I can take that. Yep, uh, yeah, so it does help a lot just because you can automate a lot of the processes. So a lot of uh, scripts out there that are security focused are written in Python. So Python has been the, I guess, the uh, main uh, programming language within security as far as scripting or automating your methodology. So when I joined the team, there was a lot of uh, manual processes that I saw that I saw that we can essentially automate it. And that has significantly impacted my the efficiency as far as uh, the turnaround on results uh, when it comes down to the analysis. And then also it's it helps you not or prevent 
uh, going down the rabbit hole, meaning if you have scripts that output the results that you need, you don't need to start look, poking around somewhere else that you shouldn't, meaning wasting your time, right? So I think it helps a lot knowing uh, some some type of script and not just Python. It could be uh, Ruby or, or Shell or anything along those lines in order to automate the process because a lot of the EDR tools uh, do take that approach as far as uh, scripting, uh, being able to automate the entire process of incident response enterprise-wide, right? So we want to make sure that you can take that and learn that and apply it to in each individual system. Meaning if you have one system to take a look at, you can kick off a script and it outputs all the results that you need. And even after you get the results, sometimes there's a lot of noise, uh, meaning if you're looking at logs or if you're looking at different artifacts, there's a lot of legitimate traffic there where you can also use scripting there to better help you prepare yourself to looking at relevant artifacts. So it's definitely a big plus uh, within our team. It's definitely something that we we like to push uh, against uh, my coworkers. And also uh, whenever we hire new people, we look into to see if they have that um, uh, skill set, just because it's going to add a lot of value, not just to themselves, but the overall team, because uh, it, it provides more efficiency across the board, not just for, for that individual. Sure, sure. Thanks. That is, that is very useful. Um, coming to certifications, do certifications matter? Like we spoke a little bit about like education, but uh, do you require like certain certifications for certain roles or is it like depends on like the, the candidate and not really like looking for certain certifications? Yeah, so I, I'd say that it's probably varied. Um, there are certain times where we're looking for certifications, and usually if that's the case, it's also because we may have certain obligations on us as an organization. We may see, hey, we are obligated to have so many certifications to meet a certain threshold for a regulatory body or an accreditation that we hold, and so we need to have certain levels. And so typically we'll look for it for those kinds of things. What I've generally looked at is, Certifications are, are good for that, and certifications are also typically good, for example, if you have to go before a court and you have to testify. Certifications, just like a degree, are a good way to show that you have some independently verified level of expertise. Um, but beyond that, oftentimes what we're really looking for is the practical application of it. So if you can do it, the certifications matter less. And I know depending on the individual, they may have more or less opportunity to go get certifications. But just because you don't have a certification doesn't mean you're not the most amazing incident responder or threat intelligence person in the world. It may just be that you didn't focus your time on taking that class and paying for that test and taking that test. So I try to be somewhat open-minded about that and say, let's look and see what the individual can do. And if they can do what's needed, then the certifications are not as necessary. Um, the area where sometimes the certifications help is like anything, like a degree or any of those other things. Sometimes it can be a foot in the door if a particular business may have a minimum threshold. So some companies say, hey, we're only going to hire people that have a four-year degree. Some people are going to say, we're only going to hire people that have these certifications. I think, honestly, that's a bit closed-minded. Some of the best people that I've ever hired had no college degree and no certifications, and they're still some of the top people in the industry. So I, I think it's a nice to have, and it's good for you know a lot of people to be able to have for themselves. Um, but I don't necessarily say that it's a requirement. Sure. And uh, John, what do you feel? 
Uh, I agree, Chris. Uh, simply stated, um, I, I I only have uh, my major certification is CISSP, and uh, I, I've had forensic certifications with the government that are no longer valid. But uh, for me, it, it hasn't been a factor. It's been my experience over the years that really comes into play. Um, but but I see I see certifications as a very much like a degree. It's it's. It's, it's one of those things that are nice to have. It gets your foot in the door, but when it comes down to it, it is uh, you know, assessing folks for the ability to actually do the job. So certifications are great, that, that, that's a stepping stone, uh, but, but having those skills that we've been talking about uh, during this call, having uh, the ability to be flexible, having the, the, the curiosity and the investigative aspect, being analytical, being able to continuously learn are all of those things that um, I really think are, are the, the bigger factor in being successful and in, in getting the, the career choice uh, that you're looking for. Sure. And Mauricio, yeah. you, have, uh, you have offensive and defensive certifications. So can you tell us a little bit? Because, uh, suppose, because I'm talking about like not people who have proven themselves in different and then transition like say John, right? John, you transition from the military into uh, a, a role in in the corporate world, but I'm talking about like people who are um, maybe a, a SOC analyst, maybe working in some BCPDR kind of thing, or any ancillary things where you know the transition. And does that help, Mauricio? What do you think? Yeah, I think certificates help in a way that it gives you exposure to the material, so it gives you guidance of if you find something interesting, a certain topic, then you can dive into it. I think. When it comes down to certifications, it gives you, a, a, I guess, a bundle of information that's useful for you to kind of dive deeper if, if it catches your interest. Uh, for me, um, I decided to start getting certifications in, in the defensive side just because, uh, or sorry, in the offensive side, just because on the, on the, on the job, I learned the uh, defensive side. So I'm able to learn uh, by, again, getting my hands dirty, but not necessarily on the offensive side. So to be a good de defender, you need to know your offense. So that's why I decided to take that route as far as getting uh, certifications in the uh, offensive side, just because it gives me the exposure of thinking like the bad guy. So I know knowing knowing what steps uh, the threat actors take helps me translate that into the uh, defensive side where I, I know where to look, I know where to uh, where certain artifacts are that would answer the questions that I need just because I'm thinking like, like the bad guy. So I think it helps not just uh, getting certifications on the field that you that you do, meaning day-to-day -day tasks that you do. It helps to expand that and get other certifications that would help you grow within your um, professionally and then also expand your career, meaning you can take other routes, not just stick to the same uh, job that you have uh, pretty much until you're retired. It helps you expand just because it gives you that exposure to information that will help you guide, guide yourself into making the next step. And as far as uh, individuals that are just joining the um, security industry, I recommend first getting the Network Plus and Security Plus. Those two certifications are the foundation pretty much into getting to the security because once you get into the, uh, a security role, then you can take other courses from SANS, which is a well-known institution that uh, a lot of uh, security individuals go there to get certifications. But SANS is more uh, once you define what kind of um, job or whatever role you want to take, helps you build that skill set. 
whereas the network plus security plus gives you that foundation of uh, security overall. So it helps you kind of choose which path you want to take after you take those uh, two certifications. That, that really and good. one thing, Lou, if I could just add on to that too. Um, so, you know, before I mentioned that the certifications are, are not necessarily something that I see as being a requirement, I wanted to just uh, clarify that I think the education path to them is absolutely valuable. So, you know, I, I may not say, hey, someone needs to have certification A or B in order to be able to interview or apply or even get a specific role, but I very much welcome and encourage people to go down that path. I want to make sure that people are pursuing that because they want to learn the knowledge and not just to have the certification. Certification is great, but it's like, you know, going to university, if you come out and you graduate, but you can't do what it was that that degree actually says, it's not going to be as valuable. So I think there's that combination aspect there of, you know, taking the class and learning the concepts and how you apply them. And then the certification there being the backstop to say, yes, I actually did it and can show it. Sure. And besides it even validates that you are like learning and you have that lifelong learning, which is required in this role because things become absolute very fast uh, in what we do. Um, Chris, and uh, I, I want to start with you first, because suppose somebody is trying to get like relevant experience. What is your advice? Because it's not like something that I could sit here and uh, do some bug bounty stuff and all that, right? Like there are certain certain like pathways which are more uh, like not. I'm not trying to say easier, but like which are like more. Uh, there is like more defined. But uh, somebody who is trying to uh, learn something. So how how does how does somebody get their experience? Because that is the most difficult. Yeah. So I would say if you're already in an organization where they have incident response capabilities and you're trying to make a, a move into that group, then what I would recommend is reach out to the leader of that group and ask how you can learn. Most of us who manage those teams are very willing to accept people who want to shadow, learn, plug in. I'm, I'm always very open to it. I get lots of requests from, from people all across Verizon who are looking to, to learn about it and we're happy to get them exposed to it because, hey, if it's, if it's a great fit for them and a great fit for us, that may be our next candidate. Um, so I, I think most, most good leaders are, are, are willing to allow that mentoring, shadowing kind of experience. If you're not in the kind of organization that has a big breadth of capability, then typically what I would say is look out there, you know, go to places like LinkedIn and Twitter, see who it is that you see as being kind of a, a key person in that field um, and connect with them. I get a lot of requests, a lot of, um, you know, direct messages on LinkedIn, people just asking questions saying, hey, I want to get into this. I don't have this background. What would you suggest I do? Or who would you suggest I talk to? Or what material should I read and study? There is so much more out there um, that, that didn't exist before that does now. Um, I know that at, at Verizon, we use a platform called Bright Talk where we release a tremendous amount of material. Myself, John, Mauricio, and, and pretty much my entire team um, are on that platform probably several times a month doing webcasts about what it is we're seeing and doing. And we make a lot of material available for download. Lots of other companies do too. Um, and so there's a lot of great resources like that out there that you can really pick up. And then the other thing I would also say is there are lots of community groups. So I know that, that obviously you have a, a meetup group, I think that's uh, in the, uh, 
the end here that you'll mention, but also there's a lot of local groups that um, that my team takes part in, for example, like um, ECTF, which is a uh, secret service sponsored uh, organization, and they have local chapters all over the world, and it's the Electronic Crimes Task Force. So if you're interested, you can generally just find out who the local chapter representative is, and you can usually ask to come. There may be a small nominal fee to attend the meetings, but it's also a great networking event. It's a, it's a fast-growing field, so there's a lot of hiring and mentoring opportunities. Um, and then also another area that I, I see as being good, too, is um, there's another group, IAFCI, the uh, International, International Association of uh, Cyber Forensic Investigators. Um, that is also out there as another uh, fantastic resource um, that, that folks can plug into as uh, a place where they can get information on what they could be learning. And a lot of them also have like local seminars and webcasts um, as well. Thanks. And John? Uh, in terms of, uh, so uh, I, I guess like for me, um, if you see an opportunity to get involved in cybersecurity, uh, maybe you're coming from uh, a risk management standpoint and you see an opportunity to get involved with uh, doing uh, incident response or SOC, take that opportunity, take that entry level position if it is, and, and start working on your skill sets and, and, and building up. For me, um, it was an opportunity that came. I didn't come looking for it. It came and somebody offered me a position because they saw that I had some of those skill sets I've I, I mentioned earlier. And I took that for what it was worth. And once I got in there, I just started building my skill sets and newer opportunities opened up for me all along my journey. So I think it's, it's if you see that opportunity, don't hesitate, jump, take it, get it, lean forward, right? Continuously be curious, be hungry, be flexible, and never, ever, ever, ever stop learning. Sure. And Mauricio, uh, what would you what would you advise somebody who's looking to get some kind of experience so that you know they can uh, because because sometimes that experience is required for them to know if this is a good fit for them, right? Because you you think something is a great career, and then when you reach there, you feel that oh, this is really not for me. So, what would you advise that person? Yeah, I think uh, Chris highlighted some uh, the social media aspect is uh, very important. So on Twitter or even Reddit, there's individuals that you can follow that are influencers within the industry that typically they'll post, for example, uh, an article or even a, a, uh, a tool that has been released. So you can go to that site, download the tool, start playing around with it. So if you can continuously track those individuals and monitor the tweets that put out you'll be able to get exposure to new technology within the security aspect, and then also be up to date as far as what the trends are, what the news are happening out there. Another um, platform you can use is podcasts. So uh, two podcasts that I listen to is the Sense Internet uh, Storm Center. So it's essentially uh, the Sense Institute puts it out every day where they release uh, pretty much daily news as far as security, uh, new patches, new tools, uh, new vulnerabilities, et cetera. So there's a lot of information there that gets put out every day. Another one's uh, Defensive Security uh, with Jerry Bell, uh, which is essentially a podcast where they put out once a week, uh, but it's not just the technical aspect they discuss, but they also non-technical aspect. So it gives you that perspective, the business decision-making that takes into account whenever there's an incident. So it gives you exposure to that. You don't necessarily need to be an incident response investigator to get that exposure. You can listen to podcasts. And then the last one, uh, I know uh, Chris mentioned a couple of groups that you can join. 
Another one is the uh, Information System Security Association, so the ISA. So they have chapters worldwide, so you can probably look into joining the chapter local. I know Nova, North Virginia, where I'm based out of, uh, they have a chapter here, uh, which we have monthly meetings. And then within those meetings, there's actual individual or companies that come out. And at the end of the meeting, they pretty much ask who's looking for a job. We're, we're looking to hire X, Y, and Z. Uh, so you have opportunities there to network and even um, have direct access to that company, meaning you don't have to wait for a recruiter to reach out to you. You can directly communicate with the hiring manager and uh, get get your uh, uh, foot in the door uh, as far as uh, looking for opportunities out there. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, is there like any kind of particular uh, mindset or is there is there like some kind of like uh, traits or some kind of uh, uh, soft skills that you look for? Or have you seen like... Uh, people who are more likely to be successful uh, if they are like, I would say like, uh, like you mentioned previously, right? A person who can write a report well, who can communicate their findings into, into in a non-technical way, um, lifelong learner, uh, what else uh, would you recommend? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump on that and say that absolutely. Oh, go ahead, John. No, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say that absolutely the lifelong learner aspect, you know, I, I think Mauricio also hit on this as well, that, you know, a key piece of it is always wanting to learn new things. And, you know, I always try to encourage my teams to try to consider putting themselves outside their comfort zone, because I think the natural human response is this is what I do well and this is what I like to do. And so I'm going to do lots of that. Um, but generally, if you want to be able to mature your career and move on to the next level, you're going to want to probably take on some of the new hard stuff that you haven't done before, or maybe some of the stuff that you go, ooh, that's made me a little bit uncomfortable to try to dip my toe into that because I don't know it as well. But a lot of times what I find is some really amazing people never knew that they'd be good at something because they just never thought they would try it. And then kind of, you know, give them a little bit of an encouraging push and say, look, try this try this. And then before you know it, they realize they're amazing at that too. They like it. And now they've got additional skill sets. So from a, a professional uh, development standpoint, it's great for them. And a lot of times they just need kind of a, a manager to kind of give them a little bit of a push and encouragement um, in those directions. And, and I would encourage anybody out there to be receptive to it because, you know, at the end of the day, it, it can't hurt to try. And if it's really not for you, at least then, you know, um, and if it is, great, it's another thing you can add to your resume. Thanks. And John, you were saying something? To, to echo Chris, uh, don't be complacent. Um, always uh, get outside of your comfort zone. Always be learning. Uh, stay on top of your game. Uh, communicate with other folks. Learn from other folks. Mauricio pointed out, as well as Chris, several organizations that you can join, as well as social media. Always, always keep learning. Be flexible um, with your mind um, because... The threat actors, they're always learning too. They're looking for new ways to thwart cyber defenses. And as an investigator, you're essentially a threat hunter, right? You need to, to, to be able to adapt to a mindset where you've got to be analytical and at the same time flexible and always learning new techniques to, uh, to do your investigation and be successful with your incident response efforts. Um, and for me, uh, being able to do that and being able to, to, to come to a successful resolution is there's no greater satisfaction out there. So having that, that pride, that passion in, in helping somebody out and then learning from that so that you're up for the challenge the next time, I think is really key to, to this field. 
thanks. What is you saying something? Yeah, I was going to say just one last thing uh, that I didn't get a chance to learn like uh, within the education industry. Uh, it's pretty much what you learn on the job is dealing with people. So when you're trying to put a fire out, there's going to be a lot of emotions happening that you need to be able to juggle that on top of doing the technical aspect. So something that you, there's no book for it. You kind of have to learn on the job. Uh, is dealing with people. Again, when, when there's fire that needs to be put out, there's going to be a lot of emotions across the board, Just not just from uh, the technical people you're dealing with, but from leadership, uh, the pressure from leadership that you'll get. So it's something that you need to, that gets overlooked that you need to be able to be good at uh, as far as dealing with people. Wow, that is, that is very valuable. Yes, managing people's expectations and like uh, trying to keep calm and uh, when tempers are flaring and everybody's like maybe trying to blame people or something to work through all that is, yes, that is, that is a, a skill that probably you have to learn, right? It doesn't like get taught anywhere or no certification to validate that. <laughs> exactly. So, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, John, uh, Mauricio and Chris for joining me today. And uh, next week on Cybersecurity Career Talks, we're going to have uh, uh, three very good uh, recruiters and they are going to um, talk to us how we can partner with them. If you are trying to get like a career in cybersecurity, what's the best way to like reach out to them? How do you work with them so that you can have a successful career and um, shorten your uh, job search uh, by a certain extent, you know, because maybe they expect something from you and what kind of response and, and how to organize yourself and where, where to look for jobs, etc. So they're going to talk to us about resumes, about uh, interviews, about uh, job search, where do you look for them? Do you go to like a portal? Do you look, go to the company directly, etc. cetera? Uh, thank you so much and see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.